The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Well, welcome to OPCC. It's good to see you uh, here today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We'll talk about expectations today. Expectations are funny. There's a funny word. I, I was thinking about it. Um, like I have a... Um, you, when you think about how the word is used, you can, you can say it in a lot of different ways. Um, like I, I have some expectations coming up. I, I, I tagged out, and some of you don't care about this, but I, like it helps me get going. But when it comes to, to bow hunting, last year I tagged out early. Um, and so I did not get to hunt during the rut, which is always a really cool time to hunt. And so um, this year I'm moving into that, that that's coming right up. Yeah, you're already tagged out, bro. <laughs> and so I have expectations about what those couple of weeks are going to be like. Um, and, and that's exciting to, to look forward to. So I have my own kind of expectations. We have ex- expectations we put on ourselves. And, um, and then we might say, well, someone might say to us, well, what were you expecting? And that's a totally different thing, right? Um, or, or some, you, someone you might say, well, man, that just that totally exceeded my expectations. That went way out there. Uh, so there's all these different ideas about expectations, and sometimes others' expectations can be placed upon us, and they can cause us to get really tripped up. So we have to be careful about this idea with, of expectations. And so today, as we get into our text, um, we have the first church council. Well, the first time the church had a council, and there's some significant councils that happened in the early church, this, this one probably being the most significant thing um, that happened in the church, which means they had to come together and make a decision about something that brought about a sharp disagreement. So they had some conflict, and it was around this idea of expectations. So they came together to talk about it. So councils are good things. Um, And I might say, I I sent many of you an email this past couple of days ago. Some of you may or may not have gotten it, Um, but you will be getting information about it. It's in your bulletin. November 17th, we're having a special meeting. We always have an annual meeting this time of year. But this one's one's going to be a little bit different because um, the Lord is moving and we have some expectations about the kingdom. It's pretty fascinating that we've been in this series and we didn't see it coming, and the Lord's sort of putting things together, but even as we look about um, what the Lord is doing in the midst of the body and how we've seen some sort of really just miraculous movement um, over where we feel the Lord is calling us to go as a body of believers, and so we, we're thinking in terms of kingdom come. So we're expecting the kingdom to come, and we have some expectations about what the Lord wants us to do just simply because we were confused we didn't know exactly what to do, and then all of a sudden the Lord sort of opened a door, and we're like, whoa, like the Lord is showing us what he wants us to do here, and we, had, we weren't prepared for that, so it was very surprising. I don't have time to get into that today, but that's kind of where we head toward um, uh, the, the next year, some exciting stuff out ahead of us, and it's about expectations. So we'll come together as a, a body on the 17th, like I, you know, just be here. Okay, I've never said this before, but I'm going to say it. If you're just planning to go on a little weekend trip, cancel it. Like, this is important. It's important for what's happening in the future and the ministry of what the Lord has called this church to, 
and something that I believe, like the, the moment I came, when the, when, when the leadership team asked me to come, there was a vision the Lord put on my heart about what I feel like he was saying he wanted to do in this community and what he's called us to. And I believe we're at a, at a tipping point about what the Lord is doing. And I think the day has come where things are really going to shift for us as a ministry. And so this is an important day, and, and you get to be a part of that. And that's exciting. So I want to encourage you uh, to, to be there. And I, I would just end that little invitation with uh, saying, like, if you love Jesus, you'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, no, no, I just want to stress how important it is. Okay, so when we get to this, when we get to this uh, passage of Scripture here about this council, um, it, it, it looks, it seems a little, in Acts chapter 15, it seems a little irrelevant and distant. It doesn't seem like one of those passages of Scripture you go, well, I mean, there's a whole lot there I can make application about. But honestly, it is the most complete theological presentation on salvation that we have in the Word of God. Like, it, it's all there. So we talk a lot uh, about, you need to be saved. And so where does that come from? Well, we can see a lot about it right here in the 15th chapter as they go through this uh, point of conflict that has to do with expectations. And so what's happening is, um, the kingdom is shifting, and the Lord, sort of like there's a shift going on for us in, in, in our ministry, and, and something has happened. Now, it, I say sort of like. I'm just saying there's a shift happening. Well, in the kingdom, there was a shift happening, and so all of this history of the Lord telling his story through the Israelite people, and they were, we call them the chosen people. Why? What were they chosen to do? They were chosen to share with all of humanity, all of the surrounding nations, what the Creator was like. That's, that's their mission, is to show the world what the, who the Lord is, okay? And so for all of these years, they've been trying to live that out, and they've gotten off track, and they've mixed it with some things that God never said to do, and it's, it's, it's sort of muddied. And so what happens is that they ha they're living under this, this dispensation of the law, that's pointing them uh, toward making these sacrifices and observing these rituals to which man had piled some other things on, and they're, they're just trying to do the best they can. Well, all of that was to point to that a Messiah, the Messiah would come and save them from their sins. And so they had an expectation that the Messiah would be a political ruler. Now, what happened when Jesus came and he wasn't a political ruler is they missed him because their expectations were off. They didn't line up with what the Lord, had, what, what, what scripture has said. And you say, well, how did they get there? Well, there's, there's a dual prophecy in all of the Old Testament. And one of them is that there is a, a prophecy of the Messiah coming as a suffering servant. And the other is he comes as a conquering king. And so which one do you choose when you're going through oppression? The conquering king is who you want, and that's the scriptures that were resonating with them over and over. But what they failed to realize is that there are two prophecies happening there, and it is the first and second coming of Christ. And so he comes first as a suffering servant riding on the colt of a donkey, and he's very humble and meek, and he dies. But when he comes the second time, the second prophecy is about him coming on a white 
horse as a conquering king. And so they miss that. And so Jesus comes and there's all kinds of Old Testament prophecy, and we're going to see some of it, that, that, the, that the, the mission of the kingdom would be opened up beyond the Jewish people. So it, it, there was already a way for a person that was not Jewish to practice Judaism. They were known as proselytes. So even we looked at a few weeks ago, this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip ended up leading to the Lord, he was most likely a Gentile proselyte. He had been proselyted into the faith, and he was trying to observe Judaism. And so there was a way to get, there was a way for a Gentile to sort of be a proselyte as a Jew. And so as the gospel unpack, is unpacked in Jerusalem and the Lord starts moving, a lot of these uh, Gentiles that were first to come in, they were proselytes. They were Jewish proselytes that, that came into Christianity and received Jesus as Savior. Well, then we get to the guy Cornelius. Um, he is not. He's, he's not a Jewish pr- uh, proselyte at all. He's just a guy who is a Gentile who the Lord invites into the kingdom. And through some miraculous events that's going on with the Apostle Peter and this guy Cornelius, the Lord brings them together and he comes into the kingdom. And so the Jewish church is, oh, all right, that's cool. All right, we see the Lord is in that. Well, then the Lord calls Paul who is a Jewish guy who was a practicing Judaizer. He um, hated what was happening in Christianity, and the Lord knocks him off of his donkey, redirects his life, and says, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. So I'm sending you to the Gentiles. So he has a three-year break where no ministry movement for the most part, like anything you know, miraculous is happening around him beyond his invitation from Jesus, And then Barnabas hears about a move that's going on in Antioch. And so a revival starts taking place in Antioch. And what does he do? He goes and he gets Paul. And he brings Paul back. And this church is started in Antioch. So you have a church that comes out of the ground on the day of Pentecost that we read about um, in the book of Acts. The first couple of chapters we read about it. And boom, thousands of people become followers of Jesus. And the church is out of the ground, and it has incredible movement. Well, over the course of the next eight years or so, what happens is another church comes out of the ground in Antioch. And this church in Antioch, man, is getting incredible movement. As a matter of fact, the church in Jerusalem has slowed down, and the church in Antioch is burning with white-hot faith. And, and it's all Gentile people for the most part because that's, it's in a Gentile region. So people who don't know anything about Judaism are just coming to know Jesus because they're teaching and preaching the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas have been on this missionary journey. They leave the Antioch church, okay? And they make a, a trip, a tour. They go to Lystra and Iconium, all these things that I've taught you the past few weeks. And after they sort of go through and, and, and make... They're making disciples in all of these areas and regions. They decide to go back to the home church, Antioch, that sent them out on this mission. And so when they get back, um, what they find out is some guys had showed up at Jerusalem. And we're going to read the text here in a moment. But I want to just kind of hit some things so you can, as we're reading through it, you don't check out. Because it's not a story like David and Goliath where you're just going to really be zoned in. All right? And so I want to kind of... Watch for these things to happen. This is what's going to happen. They, they come back to Antioch, 
And when they get to Antioch, they find that a lot of the Christians are upset. They're, they're confused because some guys came from the Jerusalem church and started telling them, if you really want to be saved, you need to observe the Mosaic law. You need to be circumcised. And so they were confused. And so Paul and Barnabas get in a debate with them. And as they get in a debate, then they decide, the, the people at the Antioch church say, we need to send a delegation back to Jerusalem to find out an answer. Where do we stand on this? Do we need to be doing more than what we've done? Because these guys are questioning whether or not we know Jesus. That's what it boiled down to, whether or not we have been saved. And so Paul and Barnabas go back to um, Antioch, and, and they meet with the brothers, and, and there's some Pharisees there that have been saved. So we look at the Pharisees in the Gospels, and they always get a bad rap, okay? They're the sect that um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were responsible for ensuring that Jesus was executed, so they get a bad rap. But after Jesus is resurrected and the church comes on, man, there are a lot of Pharisees who were a member of that sect that become Christians, and so these are your diehard conservatives, man, they're, they, they have their shoulder to the plow when it comes to the Mosaic law, and now they've met Jesus. And so they see, they're having a hard time, like they still are practicing what they've been taught all their life, and they're practicing this new thing with Jesus, and they have an expectation that everybody else should do the same. So when the, Paul and Barnabas show back up to Jerusalem and report what's going on, there's some, there's some guys there that are like, yeah. Like They do need to practice the Mosaic law. They do need to um, be circumcised. And so they, what's cool is they consider the question. So the council comes together and the leadership comes together and they think about this and they talk about it and they have a discussion. And Peter shares what happened to him. And after he's finished sharing what happened to him, and we'll read what he says, then Paul and Barnabas share what has been happening to them. And then James, this is not James the Apostle because we know he's already been executed by Herod. He was killed with a sword. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. He has been appointed to a leadership role. And so he stands up after Paul and Barnabas and Peter go, and he reads some scripture from an Old Testament prophet, and then he exercises a judgment. And he says, after we've considered this, he, he reports to the church, here's where we land on this. And I think it's best that we send a letter back to these guys and send a couple of brothers with Paul and Barnabas, and they can go back and report to the church of Antioch what is expected of them. They go back, they read the letter, the guys at Antioch are excited, and, and that's where we land with the story. Okay, so I'm going I'm to read all that, but this is what you're looking for. Watch how these things happen. And then I'm going to give you some observations to take away. What does it mean for you? Because what we're going to talk about is the, the kingdom expectations for us. They're laid out very clearly um, here in, in Acts chapter 15. Here we go. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. Just boom, right there. You cannot know and be right with God. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. 
Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. They just, boom, they drew, they, they drew their line in the sand right there and said, This needs to take place. And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So that's a good thing. Like when we hear something that somebody feels passionate about, it's good for us to stop and consider the question and, and come to a reasonable decision that the Lord leads us to. It says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Thank the Lord for that statement right there, man. Like They were trying to yoke them up with stuff the gospel didn't call for. No, he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly, this is what happens when you start working in truth, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them, like the guy who was crippled, they got healed, like, hey, man, we were stoned. Like all of these things, and God didn't let Paul die, and, and all of the movement that was happening among Paul and Barnabas that we've learned about. They were sharing all of that. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. So he goes to the word. They make a decision according to the word, not according to what man thinks. Now, what we have in the church today, universally, what's happening in America, is churches are making decisions based upon what man thinks, and they're not going to the word. That has never been the case for the church. And as soon as you do start doing that, you start committing heresy. That's why we have the word. And so he goes to the word, and he says... After this, this is what the prophet Amos wrote about. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. So what he's doing is he's pointing out the prophets have always prophesied through the power of the Lord that the Gentiles would be brought into the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, look, what we're seeing is what has been prophesied about. And then he says this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. And with them they sent the following letter. So they wrote the letter. And here's the, here's the letter. It's pretty cool. We have it. So the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. 
We have heard that some men went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you and our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that we are what we are writing. And he says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch and where they gathered the church together and, and delivered the letter. And the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, the Jewish guys they sent with them, who themselves were prophets, said, much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Okay? So there's a lot there. I get it. All right? this, This is very, very important because it shows us a doctrine of what we would call soteriology the salvation of mankind. So when you hear people say, man, you need to be saved, there are some people who say, well, that, that is a Protestant doctrine. And some might say, well, that, that's just kind of weird and out there. I just read from you something that was written 2,000 years ago about, by the guys, many of which who personally knew Jesus and claimed to have saw him resurrected in his resurrected body. And they say, that in order to know the Lord, there must be something that happens to you to which you are saved. What, why, do we, why did they say saved? Because it means that you are saved from the messianic wrath that is coming in the future. So when we say salvation, what are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God that is coming upon humanity. This is that, that when, when I said, like, man, how did they miss Jesus? They were looking for the political king that would come, the king, the reigning Messiah that was a warrior king, and Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant. Why did he come as the suffering servant? So that humanity could be saved from the wrath of his return. Like this is, the scripture could not be more clear. You, so when you study and you see, men all of these bowls of wrath in the book of Revelation, what is that about? It is about the return of the king. It's about the king coming back and making all things right. So when it talks about salvation, what are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of the Messiah when he returns to the planet at the final consummation of the age. Why do we need to be saved? Because he is holy and our sin makes us unholy. And so when we say we're saved, we are saved from the consequences of our sin, which is necessary to have a blood sacrifice to forgive us. And so the king is coming, and when he comes, everyone who has not been covered by the blood of Christ and their sin washed and taken away will receive the impending wrath of God. If it doesn't happen that way, then God cannot remain holy as he proclaims that he is. Because if God is holy, anything that is unholy cannot be in his presence, okay? 
So the Lord, he would say, man, that, when you talk about the wrath of God, Jimmy, that just makes me uncomfortable. I get it. It makes me uncomfortable too. It makes me uncomfortable for other people who do not know Christ because they will receive the wrath of God. It doesn't make me uncomfortable for myself because I know that my sins have been forgiven. How do I know that? I have been saved. How do you know you've been saved, Jimmy? Because the expectations of what it means to be saved have clearly been laid out for me in Scripture. So when we think about this, what are the expectations of salvation for us? How do we know that we're saved? Well, there's some things here that I'm going to make some observations about, and I could, man, we could preach for months on this one passage, but I won't do that. I'll just preach for a few more minutes. Here's the first one. When it comes to being saved, the Lord chooses the citizens of the kingdom. Did you see that? Like what it said there, and and he says, we know after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He said, God made a choice among the Gentiles. So he's saying, we didn't choose the Gentiles, God chose the Gentiles. And he shares a story about how I had a vision. And then these men showed up, and they said that this guy sent for me. And I went, and then and the Cornelius said, man, I had a, an angel of the Lord show up and told me that I was to send for you, and you was going to tell me how to be saved. God chose Cornelius. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? No man can come to the Father unless what? The Father draws him unto himself. So when we talk about salvation, what happens is the Lord initiates, and this is why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so important, and this is why, the, like, man, why is the church not talking about this? Like, why is the church so messed up and entangled in, man, we got to help homeless people, and we got to help people who are on, uh, addicted. I, I, I think we should, okay? But the problem is, is people don't know Jesus, And when people come to know Jesus, the people around them that they see are hurting, they will help them. And the church's number one priority is teach people what does it mean to know Jesus, okay? And so like like he's saying, like the Lord says, the, 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 the invitation comes from the Lord. And so the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is that his role is what? To convict the world of sin. John chapter 17, basic teaching of Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, and then when we respond to him, then his role becomes to us is to remind us everything that has been taught in the word as we sit with him, as we pray, then the Holy Spirit's role shifts in the life of the believer. He continues to convict us of sin, and he continues to help us and remind us of the things that we've been taught in in the word. And so the way the Holy Spirit would work in a believer's life is that the Lord would use the things that I'm even teaching you today, and all of a sudden, man, you might be tempted by sin, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit might bring to your attention something that was said in a sermon, and you go, remember we talked about this in, in church, and we were looking at the word, or remember this morning I was reading the word and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit brings it to my attention and and I I know to avoid this particular thing and so what happens in salvation is that the Holy Spirit begins to knock on the door of the heart okay that's the invitation now in the midst of this God is sovereign and he makes a choice and we have this dilemma of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man all right so we, how does man have a choice if God already knows who's going to choose? No, I don't know. But that's in there, okay? It's like that Prego uh, spaghetti sauce. Remember the old commercial? They say, has it got that? It's in there. <laughs> it's in there. And this is in the Word. 
okay, is that the free will of man to choose and the sovereignty of God are both in the word. And so we have a choice in the matter that does not impact God's sovereignty whatsoever. And so we either open the door of our hearts and say to Jesus, come in, I believe, or we reject it. And so the question I have for you is like, if you believe the word is the truth, and you believe, in Je- like you believe Jesus actually lived and he is who he said he is, why would you reject or fight the choice of royalty? Like, why would one do that? If one stops just for a moment to think logically about this, then you would come to the conclusion it is absolutely foolish to reject the heart or the Lord's invitation of, of, of me coming into his kingdom, whom I, I know I'm unworthy. I don't deserve to be in the kingdom. There's nothing good in me. And that's the point of salvation is for us coming to a place of recognition that we don't do anything to receive salvation other than receive it. Like it's not coming to church. It's not because you're at this church today that that you get invited. It is because the Lord chooses to invite you. And then you get to choose whether or not you accept the invitation. Here's the second observation. The Lord knows your heart. Okay? You can fool a lot of people. You can even fool yourself. But you will never fool the king. Okay? Some of you may be walking in a place in your life right now where you've got people fooled. You may, you may be walking in a place, I think you're a believer. I have no idea whether or not you're a believer based upon just I see that you, it seems to me that you love the Lord, but ultimately I can't make a judgment about your heart because I cannot see into those matters. I can look at your life and I can see whether or not you have fruit. So what I'm saying to you is I'm easily fooled. All you have to do is tell me you love Jesus. Tell me like that you love other people and you, so I can be fooled very easily. You can fool people around you, and you can fool yourself. You can tell yourself over and over and over, I know Jesus, I must know Jesus. Look at the people around me. They know Jesus, and they like me. But the problem is you may be fooling them. And so you can fool yourself. You don't want to fool yourself, okay? Because here's the deal. You will never fool God. Watch this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So the second observation is the Lord knows your heart. He can look right into your heart. He knows exactly whether or not you are saved or not. And if you will quit ignoring the question, you know right now whether you are saved or not. Like I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am a child of God. And I'm going to show you how I know here in a moment and how you can know with assurance that you have been made right with the Lord and have been saved. And so if you haven't responded to his choice, here's the second question about the second observation. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting until you get it together enough to where he's pleased with you because you're never going to get there? You can't get there. There's nothing you can do to please God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The only person who ever pleased God was Jesus. And he is the Paschal Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So we have to come to a place in our lives to realize, I'm never going to please God. There's nothing in and of myself that is good enough and righteous that can please God. I need his righteousness to be imparted upon me. And that's what happens when we are saved. 
We receive the righteousness of Christ. Okay, now watch this. Here's the third thing. The Lord's acceptance is validated by the Holy Spirit. This is what they said. Like he said, Peter said, men, look, God made the choice that they would hear from my lips the good news, and then all of a sudden, they received the Holy Spirit just like we received the Holy Spirit. What was I to do? Fight against God? And so what is he saying to us? The validation of salvation is always the coming of the Holy Spirit into someone's life. And, and so possessing the Holy Spirit is how you know you've met the king's expectations. Watch this. Paul expands on this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also, he says, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what does that mean? It means that, again, when he talks about the inheritance, the inheritance is when the king returns, the inheritance will be given out to those citizens of the kingdom. And so the Holy Spirit is a deposit into the life of the human being. He is deposit. So this is why we say that we teach about the indwelling of the Spirit of the Lord. This is why right now, like, I'm not just giving you a nice little um, homily and just trying to encourage you about how you can be a better husband this week. You want to know how you can be a better husband this week? Is you be saved and follow Jesus, and you will love your wife better than you ever have in your existence. Okay? I'm preaching to you in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. I know I am because I didn't know if I was even going to be able to get a word out this morning because I couldn't hold my eyes open, okay? I was just feeling flat. And the Lord, and I just told the Lord this morning, I was like, Lord, like you, I, I, it doesn't matter how much I've prepared. It doesn't matter how much I know about the word. What matters, Lord, is that you show up and as I'm preaching and teaching your people in their physical ears that you speak to their heart because you know their heart and you know the response that needs to be given. And so as that happens, man, when we, when we respond to it, the mark of the, the seal of the Holy Spirit is a deposit that enables me even to do what I'm doing right now. It enables me to love my wife as Jesus loves the church. It enables me to have the wisdom of God in my life to parent my children. It enables me to have the fruit of my spirit in my, in my life in order to love the Lord's people and fight for them as he's called me to. It enables me to have the energy of the spirit to do the work of the kingdom because I am indwelt with the spirit. And they're like, I know this. <laughs> like, I, I, I know this. For 20-something years, I've been walking in the Spirit, in freedom, and the Lord is carrying me. I don't wonder about this. If you are wondering about this, you don't have to wonder about this. As a matter of fact, that is a place of, of bondage and slavery that the captive is, is to be let out and set free. This is why the children of Israel, as they're telling the message of God as the chosen people to all the nations, what is, what is, the, what is, the, what is the message that we look at Israel? Bondage, set free. How? 
power of God. Through what? Faith in him showing up to deliver them. Led out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. We go, where's my Red Sea miracle? It's called the cross of Calvary. Heaven is split wide open and God himself is crucified in your stead in order that you might know him and be indwelt with the spirit of the Lord. And he comes in. And so we see this in the churches like they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And, and if you don't know that, here's, here's where I'm, what, I, what I want you to hear very clearly. If you do not know that you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Like, and I don't mean that to, I'm not saying that to say, oh man, I want you to go out of here feeling guilty. But no, I want you to go out of here knowing that you're saved. I'm your pastor. Like, I'm the one who's responsible for the Lord's flock and you are sheep. Then my main responsibility is that you know the chief shepherd. And how do you know that you know the chief shepherd? You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit who has come upon you and transformed your life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. He now walks by faith, not by sight, because he is indwelt with the Spirit. He is not in love with the things of the flesh anymore. As a matter of fact, he has grown a distaste for sin, and he does everything in the power of the Spirit to turn away from sin and follow the Lord of the universe because he's indwelt with the Spirit. Not because he's trying to be a good little boy or good Christian boy or girl or man or woman. He's just in love with the Lord because the Lord lives in him. So that's the, the, uh, uh, the Lord's validation. And then what, what happens? And that kind of led into that. The Lord purifies the heart of the validated. Like he purifies it. The, 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 the Greek word that, that Peter uses there when he says uh, of those people, he says, man, the Lord chose them. And at giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us, he made no distinction between them, for he purified, it said. He purified their hearts by faith. That is the word katharezo, and it means to pronounce clean. <laughs> I love this. Come on, man. To pronounce clean, free from defilement of sin. I'm clean. Like, I'm, like, look at me, Lord. I can talk to you today, and I can say anything that I want to say about truth because I am clean. Not because I am good. I am clean. There's an old song. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Like, like the, I'm reminded of... Um, are you washed? Are you washed? Are you washed in the soul-cleansing blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed? Come on, man. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you know how good it feels to stand before you and to say, look, the Lord looks at me. He knows my heart, and I am clean. I'm not defiled. The Spirit of the Lord is in me. And it has nothing to do with what I did last week. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on Calvary. I'm clean. 
And so like we look at that, we go, man, the Lord purifies our hearts and we can stand before him when he comes as the conquering king riding on the horse, not sitting on the foal of a donkey, but riding on the white horse to give us the imagery of a conquering king returning to the planet. I can stand in awe and stand in amazement of the return of the king because I'm anticipating his arrival because I am clean. And then we land with the last observation before we hit the big idea. The Lord's grace saves us. And so what are they saying? Because you're like, man, these guys, we've all our lives known that you have got to be circumcised in order to please God. And these guys are coming into the kingdom and they're saying they know Jesus and they're not circumcised. We've got to get them circumcised. They've got to follow the Mosaic law. And the brothers recognized the power of the Holy Spirit and the shift in the kingdom, and they came to this conclusion. Jesus plus anything is works righteousness. It is by grace that we are saved. He said, well, why are we always being challenged that we're to start working in the church? Really, um, I, maybe it is because you're walking in disobedience and people are trying to get you to recognize you're walking in disobedience because if you were really responding to the truth of God, you would want to do the work of the kingdom because the kingdom would be in you and it would need to come out of you. And so we shouldn't really be telling people to do the work of the kingdom. They should just be doing it if they are in the kingdom. And what do we learn about this? Is It's not gained by performance. It's just simply received through faith. And when it's received, there's a transformation that takes place. And that brings me to the big idea as I land the talk today. Don't try to cleanse yourself. Just live like you've been cleansed. That's what they say to them. They say, man, like... There are brothers that you, there are brothers around, and, and they're saying, avoid these things. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't get involved in these, this pagan worship that's happening. Even though we know, and, and Paul later develops this, this thought, he says, even though we know there's nothing powerful in that meat, it's offensive to our brother and the weaker brother who can't walk in the liberty that you walk in. Don't do anything to offend them and cause them to stumble. Just live like you've been cleansed. And, and, and the guys like the, the Gentiles, as they heard the word, they had no problem with that. They were like, just don't start telling us that what has happened to us is deficient because we haven't done A, B, C, and D for you. And so what I want to tell you at this church, it will always be the way in is simply believe in Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus and the Spirit comes, transformation happens and our lives are changed. Don't make it difficult Live out what you are. This is what it means to have faith and live like you're cleansed. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.